The fields are no greener anywhere in Ireland than in County Roscommon. It's an emerald green, a colour of green you cannot find in this country or any other country. It had a lot of heathers and a lot of fields. There was lots of farming. I grew up in a thatched cottage. Walls of stone they were. I loved growing up on the farm. I wouldn't change it for another thing because it was the most beautiful place. The nicest environment to be brought up in. I was the baby. I had three brothers, and they were much older than me. When they got older, two of my brothers left the home. Of course, the boys grew up in Ireland and the girls too. They usually went to England or the United States to continue their livelihood. One went to England to work on a big farm over there. My older brother, Thomas, went to America. He was a motorman driving the trolley cars on the west side and the east side of New York. He was going to come back to Ireland, but then he got pneumonia and just never returned. I miss them a lot because we were real chummy. With the two boys gone, it was hard, rough work on the farm. The youngest of my brothers, Dominic, stayed. He was my pal. But when Thomas left, I wanted to come to America. I wrote this letter to him and he said, Whenever you want to come, Martha, let me know and I'll send you your passage money for the boat. He sent me two hundred dollars, I think. My parents didn't want me to go. My mother always said, Martha, if you like the United States, you may stay. And if you don't like it, you should come home. You'll find yourself a nice Irish boy and get married. Oh, and I said, is that so? How do you know I wanted to be bothered with any Irish boys? Maybe I want someone in Canada or someplace. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I am Marie Bartlett, the Director of Education at the Northeast George History Centre. You are listening to our museum's podcast, Then Again. The Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island are intrinsically linked in the minds of many Americans. But why? They are also both symbols of the American identity and hold significant reminders of American history. Today, we will be joined by Dr. Alan Kraut to explore these ideas more. Yes, good morning. I'm Alan Kraut. I'm Distinguished Professor of History at American University in Washington, D.C., and I chair the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island History Advisory Committee, which works with the Park Service and the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation to ensure the accuracy of the exhibitry in the Ellis Island Museum and in the Statue of Liberty Museum as well. First, we will be looking at the Statue of Liberty. As the Statue of Liberty appeared in the New York Harbor before Ellis Island became an immigration station. Well, I think in many ways, the Statue of Liberty uh, is terribly significant to the American identity. It has replaced Uncle Sam and other symbols that in the past have stood for the United States. It's a, uh, a symbol of American belief in liberty and democracy that goes around the world. In fact, uh, back during the Tiananmen Square crisis in China, here in Washington, where I live in front of the Chinese embassy, there were big paper mache images of the Statue of Liberty being held up by the protesters. So in every instance, the Statue of Liberty, both to the American people, but to others around the world, have, has come to embody the American commitment to democracy and freedom. 
The Statue of Liberty is actually just part of this lovely lady's name, a nickname almost, if you will. Her full name is the Statue of Liberty Enlightening the World. She stands 305 feet tall, well, almost. That includes her pedestals, not just her statue height. She has a torch in her right hand raised. And then in her other hand, she has a tablet bearing the adoption date of the Declaration of Independence, which of course is July 4th, 1776. The Statue of Liberty Enlightening the World was a gift of friendship from the people of France to the United States. Well, you know, the Statue of Liberty, as it was conceived of by René Laboyer in France, was to be a gift to the United States to celebrate the emancipation of slaves after the Civil War. Laboyer was a, a historian, a legal scholar. He believed very much in emancipation and freedom, and the French had already uh, liberated their slaves. They uh, were no longer a slaveholding country. And after the Civil War, Le Boyer envisioned some sort of gift to the United States to celebrate this common bond in freedom. And um, the story goes that it came up at a dinner party. And at that dinner party in 1865, present was Bartholdi, a young sculptor who was already gaining a reputation. And the two decided to discuss the possibility of a statue as a gift to the United States. So this is by way of explaining that the Statue of Liberty had a connection to slavery and to the abolition of slavery, but not at first to immigration coming to the United States. In fact, if you look at early sketches of what the statue might be, there was a chain, a broken a cha the chains of bondage around the neck of the statue. That was reduced in size considerably, and there is under the foot of Miss Liberty a chain being shattered. In fact, if you flew over the Statue of Liberty today in a helicopter and looked down, you would see that chain under the statue's foot. Therefore, the Statue of Liberty was not conceived to be a symbol of immigration, but rather about the abolition of slavery in the United States. It would not become linked to immigration until a now-famous poem was attached to it. That really occurred as the result of a poem that was written by Emma Lazarus, a young New York poetess of German-Jewish background in the 1880s, and it was designed to help raise money for the base of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, the newspaper editor, Joseph Pulitzer, was trying to raise money for that base, and so one of the things they did was to have uh, art exhibits and auctions and so on. And this play, the new, uh, this poem, I should say, The New Colossus, was her, Emma Lazarus's contribution to, um, to that endeavor. And of course, we don't remember the entire poem usually, but we do remember at least one stanza. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. As a fourth grader, I was made to remember that stanza, and I've remembered it ever since. And school children all over the country read and remember that stanza for the poem. Emma Lazarus died young, but she had a friend, Georgina Schuyler, who was uh, from a very wealthy Schuyler family in New York, 
And Georgina took the, that stanza, had it cast in bronze, and it was placed in the base of the Statue of Liberty. And it's still there. The pedestal on which the Statue of Liberty stands was designed by American architect Richard Morris Hunt. And this pedestal was built within the walls of Fort Wood. Before the Statue of Liberty essentially took over Fort Wood in 1876, the island and fort had been a strategic position from which to defend New York from an enemy attack. Fort Wood was a massive stone fort. It was constructed on the island in 1807. The remnants of the 11-pointed fort that protected New York from British invasion are still visible today as the base on which the Statue of Liberty stands. The statue, mounted on its pedestal, was dedicated by President Grover Cleveland on October 28, 1886, right as America was just beginning to experience an influx of immigrants. In the period between 1880 and the 1920s, there was a big surge in immigration to the United States. In fact, 23 and a half million people emigrated to the United States just in that period. And many of them came on ship and many of them came uh, into the port of New York, which was the busiest port uh, for immigration. And so they passed the Statue of Liberty and the Statue of Liberty uh, became even more connected in the public mind with immigration. And today it is as well. I mean, in the post-World War II period, Lady Liberty has become a symbol, not just of American freedom and American democracy, but the United States as a destination for those who are in search of a better life. First of all, immigration to the United States was a matter for states, not the federal government, until the late 19th century. For American history up to that point, immigrants passed through state-run depots. There was, for example, in New York, a New York Emigration Bureau, and doctors volunteered their services to inspect the bodies of immigrants coming into the United States. By the late 19th century, state control no longer seemed sufficiently efficient. And as a result of all of that, the federal government was gradually taking over the process. The precise location of where the immigration depot in New York would be was a matter that was contested. Some wanted it to be on Bedloe's Island, which later became Liberty Island. Some wanted it to be on Governor's Island, which is across the harbor, uh, Bedloe's Island. And then Ellis Island was a contestant as well. <clears throat> Ellis Island had been uh, the scene of Native American settlement, and they often fished in those waters and dried their fish on the island. Later, uh, Samuel Ellis bought the island, and after that, was also a fort at one point before Ellis had it. And eventually, between the three islands, Bedloe's, Governor's, and Ellis, the federal government decided that Ellis Island was the best place to put it. It was convenient to New York, it was convenient to New Jersey, and they constructed a depot. The first depot opened up in 1892. It was all made of wood entirely. It burned down in 1897 and was not reopened until 1900, when it was this time built in fireproof brick. And that's the red brick buildings we see there today. 
On June 15, 1897, a fire destroyed the complex of wooden buildings on Ellis Island. 140 immigrants and numerous employees were on the island at the time, but thankfully no one was killed. Now, since we are the Northeast Georgia History Center, I must note that the first buildings on Ellis Island that did unfortunately burn down were made of pine wood that was from our home state of Georgia. The government announced almost immediately after the fire that Ellis Island would be rebuilt with fireproof buildings. The New York architectural firm Boring & Tilton was awarded the contract. The idea was to rebuild, but to rebuild in fireproof material and to have the island be so extensive in terms of the immigration depot that there would be dormitory spaces, hospital spaces, spaces for adequate inspection of immigrants. Some immigrants were going to be detained on Ellis Island for perhaps from a few days to a few weeks, uh, and in some cases more. So you needed an adequate space, you needed it to be fireproof, and this design by Borean Tilton won the competition, if you will. There's another aspect to it, too, and that is you notice that the, the buildings on Ellis Island have almost a castle-like quality to them, don't they? And that was very, very intentional. The notion of saying to the world, we are the United States of America, and though we were not a great power yet, we were announcing our place uh, among the nations of the world and as a destination for those who were seeking greater opportunity and uh, liberty and democracy. And that was an important thing. And so this, this building was a statement about our position in the world and how we saw ourselves and how we wanted newcomers to see us. And today, if we were putting up a government building, it probably wouldn't be august in nearly the same way. It would probably be very functional, very utilitarian, uh, and perhaps even very boring. But in the 1890s, the idea was to create something that was impressive and that would awe not just the immigrants, but announce ourselves among in the community of nations. The first building to be built was the new main immigration building, which opened on December 17, 1900. In March of 1902, the main hospital building was opened. The hospital had the space and equipment to care for 125 patients, but that was still not enough. The hospital was overwhelmed with patients, primarily diagnosed with trachoma, favus, and other contagious illnesses. The hospital at Ellis Island had two functions. First, of course, was treating the immigrants who were ill as they arrived. Second was treating immigrants with conditions that were prohibited by immigration law, stabilizing these patients, and then sending them back to their home countries. One of the important dimensions of Ellis Island is that it was a depot in which immigrants were interrogated. They were asked where they were from, where they intended to go, uh, but they were also subjected to a very important medical inspection. And in our own day, we are very cognizant of the concern about the danger of disease from abroad. After all, some of our procedures these days are governed by a fear of COVID crossing America's borders, but other diseases as well. And this was especially true in the Ellis Island period. Germ theory had been developed by 
European scientists like Robert Koch in Germany, Louis Pasteur in France, Joseph Lister in England. Uh, and there was a kind of hunt for germs, if you will, and preventing harmful pathogens from coming into the United States on the bodies of immigrants. And so this medical inspection that accompanied the interrogation was terribly important. Now, not everyone was inspected on Ellis Island. If you held in your hand a first-class or second-class steamship ticket, you could be interrogated and examined in the comfort of your cabin on board the ship that came into New York waters. But if you were not traveling first or second class, then uh, there was a certain procedure that had to be followed. And that involved taking you physically to Ellis Island where you would be individually inspected by uniformed physicians, the physicians of the US Marine Hospital Service, which would later be renamed the US Public Health Service. And so that procedure took time and uh, if those physicians detected any abnormality or had any concern about your health, they would make a chalk mark on the lapel of your garment, H for hernia, X for men suspicion of mental illness, and so on. And you'd be pulled from the line, subjected to a separate inspection, and sometimes detained in the Ellis Island Hospital. Now, sometimes immigrants were suffering from diseases which were readily curable and dealt with. And so there were hospitals on Ellis Island. There was a general hospital, but there was also a contagious disease hospital, wards of a contagious disease hospital. And the south side of the island has those wards. Uh, and to this day, you can take a hard hat tour of the hospital wards on that part of the island. But the concern was always for the health of the immigrant, but also to protect the health of American society. And so that became a, a big and important part of what went on at Ellis Island. In addition to that, there was a concern about releasing individuals to, into the United States who would not be able to support themselves and would become charity cases and a burden on society. And so one of the questions that new arrivals were asked was, do you have any money? And if they had about $25, uh, that was probably good enough to help them support themselves until they got a job. But if they didn't, that was a problem. And similarly, assistance from aid organizations, very often immigrant aid organizations, uh, was important in helping the newcomers to find work uh, and to find a place to live if they didn't already have a place to go when they hit Ellis Island. Uh, so all of these were functions that were very important and required space. In addition to that, you had to have residences for the chief physician, for the head of the immigration inspection division on Ellis Island. Uh, and so there were residences there as well. And facilities, after all, some of the children might, might be there for a while. You needed facilities where you could have uh, classes, facilities where the children could play eating facility, facilities, laundry facilities, all of this required space. And so Ellis Island was a place where life went on uh, and daily routines went on. And um, not just the federal government, but immigrant agencies had to have a presence there as well. So this was arguably the largest bureaucratic endeavor 
undertaken by the United States, except when we armed for the Civil War. And that's saying something about the expansion of government, its duties, and the expansion of federal bureaucracy. 12 million immigrants were processed at Ellis Island. It has been estimated that close to 40% of all U.S. citizens currently here can trace at least one of their ancestors to being processed at Ellis Island. When an immigrant arrived, they then waited in long lines for medical and legal inspections to determine if they were even fit for entry into the United States. From 1900 to 1914, the peak years of Ellis Island's operation, an average of 1,900 people pass through the immigration station every single day. On average, the inspection process took approximately three to seven hours. Being on the island was usually a brief experience. Often relatives were contacted in advance and told to come out to the island to pick up new arrivals in their family. And this was especially important because this was the Victorian age and women, unaccompanied women, were not supposed to travel alone and would often not be released unless they were being released to a relative or a friend. Uh, the concern was about white slavery, was uh, about prostitution, and the concern that people were importing prostitutes into the United States. And so the government was being very, very careful about how they released unaccompanied women and to whom they released unaccompanied women. Ellis Island certainly was in the minds of immigrants at one and the same time, an Isle of Hope, but also an Isle of Tears. And the tears were sometimes tears of joy from escaping from oppressive regimes in Europe. Uh, certainly Eastern European Jewish immigrants to the United States never wanted to go back to Russia never wanted to go back to the Pale of Settlement. And for them, it was those tears were often tears of joy. Uh, but there were also tears that were tears of sadness on the part of immigrants who were leaving family and friends behind and who understood that they might never see their family or friends again. And so that, was the, that too was the tears. The Isle of Hope uh, notion was, after all, they were coming to the United States with the intent of improving their economic condition, embracing democracy and individual liberty, and that was hope. And so Isle of Tears, Isle of Hope went together at one and the same time. You could feel regret about what you were leaving behind, but also a, a sense of enthusiasm about what you were about to embrace. With the beginning of the First World War, and then the anti-immigrant sentiments and anti-immigrant legislation that were being passed after the war, Ellis Island saw a decline in use, which eventually led to it being shut down. What happens to Ellis Island is that it's a very important facility in the 1890s and in the first decade of the 20th century. And then, of course, immigration slows because of World War I. And after World War I in the 1920s, Congress decides that there is a need to change immigration law and basically to conduct inspections and issue visas for coming to the United States abroad. And so procedures are established to inspect and interrogate would-be immigrants in American consular offices 
in cities around Europe and other parts of the world where migration is coming, not in the Western Hemisphere, not on our borders with Canada or Mexico, uh, but certainly from the European countries. And now the medical inspection is carried on abroad. The interrogation occurs abroad. And so the need for Ellis Island in its capacity as an immigration depot is greatly diminished. And uh, we see that diminution occurring right up until World War II. Throughout the 30s, immigration has slowed because of the building of tensions in Europe. But again, there's a new procedure in place. Uh, so a lot of the things are happening abroad before the immigrants ever get to the United States. And then with World War II, Ellis Island becomes a place for detaining enemy aliens and sometimes prisoners of war. And that, that's its main function. After the war, it has all kinds of functions, even a, a drug rehab center for a brief period of time. And its doors are finally closed in 1954. In the November of 1954, the last remaining detainee on Ellis Island, a Norwegian merchant seaman named Arns Petersen, was released, and Ellis Island was officially closed by the U.S. government. Ellis Island was then essentially abandoned. Between 1954 and the 1960s, Ellis is pretty much left unsupervised, and people come out to Ellis Island and rip out the copper piping from the buildings, and there's a lot of basically abuse of the property. Finally, in the 1960s, Lyndon Johnson uh, stations armed officers on Ellis to keep those uh, folks away. But again, it sits there in New York Harbor with not much happening. Lyndon Johnson certainly is aware of what's going on. Other presidents are aware of going on what's going on. But it's not until the 1970s, and particularly at the dawn of the 1980s, that you see interest growing on the parts of the children and grandchildren of immigrants to look at Ellis Island as a site that might be established as a, a monument to the masses and a museum space to celebrate immigrants who have come to the United States and their accomplishments. And it's at that point that Lee Iacocca, the automobile executive, gets involved and in, in heads up the fundraising and marries the Statue of Liberty project to the Ellis Island project and raises, I believe it was something like $256 million for both projects, which was big money. Um, and that's when you begin to see the development of um, a scholarly mechanism and uh, fundraising for the future of Ellis Island. Uh, I came to the project as a very young historian out of graduate school. I was invited to join a group of scholars and uh, fundraisers who were meeting at Harper's Ferry, which is a park service site, a design site, to talk for several days about the possibility of having a museum on Ellis Island and opening Ellis Island to visitors. Uh, and so I got involved actually in the 1980s because somebody in the Park Service, Heather Hike, who had gotten her degree at the University of Minnesota, had read one of my books in graduate school and came to my office and visited me and asked me if I'd like to be involved. And so I was, I think, the youngest member of the committee at that point. And then after the chair, Rudy Vacoli, retired, I was asked if I would chair the committee. And I've been doing that since about 2006. And it's been a very exciting history. I mean, we have a family 
History Research Center on the island. Uh, and now, of course, the exhibits, the museum exhibits have been there for 30 years. And so at this moment, <laughs> right at this moment, uh, we are planning revision of the exhibitry, uh, which we hope will open in, in uh, 2025. Today, the Ellis Island National Museum of Immigration is a living monument to the story of the American people. The museum is housed inside the restored main building of the former immigration complex and hosts 3 million visitors annually. I want Ellis Island to be a springboard for a broader discussion of the history of immigration and its place in American history. And not just immigration, but the overall peopling of the United States. I mean, in addition to immigration, the peopling has uh, occurred through annexation, through wars and the taking of, of property, enslavement, the arrival of, of uh, millions of slaves from Africa. All of this is part of the peopling. And what we're attempting to do in this new exhibitry is not just to tell the story of Ellis Island, but to tell the bigger story of the peopling of America and the role that Ellis Island had in that peopling. And so that's what we're up to. And, um, you know, we're working on design plans and we're working on what uh, what the content of the design will be. So it's a big project. It's something that's certainly very near and dear to my heart as the grandson of immigrants to the United States from Ukraine, in fact, and Poland. I'm very, very sensitive to how important this is. Of course, Ellis Island is only a part of the story of the peopling of America. There were other immigration stations other than Ellis Island in the early 20th century. One of the most famous immigration stations was located on Angel Island in the San Francisco Bay. And there, from 1910 to 1940, the U.S. immigration station on Ellis Island processed hundreds of thousands of immigrants, the majority from China. And of course, there has been immigration since Ellis Island has closed its doors. To say that Ellis Island is only a part of the story. Remember that millions and millions of immigrants have come into the United States and continue to come into the United States, not by ship, but by plane, or in some cases on our southern border, by literally walking across the border or swimming across the Rio Grande, both those who are authorized immigrants and those who are not authorized immigrants. America continues to be a place where others want to come to make new lives and to seek prosperity as well as freedom of various kinds. And so to that extent, we want to tell the world about the American story, which is the story of immigration, international migration, the story of people who went elsewhere to seek their fortune and came here and in the process built this country. And we're always very conscious of the fact that whether we're talking about Mexican immigrants coming across the border, French Canadian immigrants coming down across the border, European immigrants coming across the Atlantic, Chinese and Japanese and Southeast Asian migrants coming across the Pacific, we're talking about the American story. The great historian Oscar Handlin, who published excuse me, a book called The Uprooted in 1951, said, I set out to write the history of immigration in the United States. And I discovered that the history of immigration is the history of the United States. 
I wanted to come in the worst way. I also had several cousins here, and I was so glad when one of them said I could stay until I got work. I got my passport, and I went to Dublin on my bicycle to get my visas signed and came back home. I told my father and mother all the stories about Dublin. <laughs> I didn't like Dublin. I didn't take a lot of stuff with me. My father didn't come to the town the day I left for the United States. Dominic, my mother, and me, the three of us, we traveled in an Irish jaunting car like a horse-drawn carriage from our house out in the country to Ballyharney, the nearest town. My father just didn't want to be bothered. I know he was farming. It was a nice sunny day and he had work to do on the farm. They took me to the County Cork. That's where I got the boat, the SS Baltic. I was 22. I traveled with a lot of boys and girls my age. An awful lot of Irish people embarked to Boston. Before I went on the boat, the doctor examined me. My fingers had warts on them, but he said it was nothing and gave me some kind of medicine. The CSS Baltic was beautiful. I didn't want to get off. I didn't want to get off because I loved the blue waters. I would have loved to stay out mid-ocean. We used to go up on the deck and go dancing and used to dance all the Irish dances up on the deck. We had a great time. I didn't get seasick. I was too busy dancing on the deck. Old-fashioned Irish dances. The trip took eight days. At Ellis Island, all I remember was that there were hundreds of people and that they gave only a small amount of food to the immigrants coming in. Arrangements were made for Thomas to meet me at the pier, but he couldn't come because he had to work that day, so a cousin did and brought me to Astoria in Queens, and they made a big dinner for me. I did miss Ireland. I missed Ireland so much. I missed my mother and father and Dominic. I wrote to them constantly, but I never saw them again. I never went back to Ireland. I always wanted to go on a trip, take a trip to the old country, but I never did. I promised my mother I would, especially after my father died. He died of pneumonia one year after I was here at Christmas. So it was my mother and Dominic left, the two of them. And I miss them. I still miss them. Martha O'Flanagan immigrated in 1925. She was age 22 and took passage on the SS Baltic. Then Again is a production of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Our podcast is edited by media producer Guada Rodriguez. Our digital and on-site programs are made possible by the Ada May Ivester Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.